Annyeong, welcome to I've Made a Huge Mistake, an Arrested Development podcast. I am your host, Darren, and with me today I have two guests. Uh, first of all, I have CJ. Hello, CJ. Annyeong. Hi, Darren. And I also have Kyle. Hi. You sound Hello, so, so not excited to um, say my name for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> no. You were a failure last no, time really. out, Kyle. I was just I was just thinking you're both returning guests, but I was just thinking about the next thing I was going to say, which is uh, this is a first on the podcast because they are hermano, hermano, um, hey brother, <laughs> you know fratello, which is uh, Italian for brother. If you didn't already know that, right? Um, sure. Which I don't understand because I did four years of Spanish. Um, <laughs> so uh, today's episode is episode seven of season two, Switch Hitter. It was broadcast on the sixteenth of January two thousand and five. Uh, it was written by Barbie Adler, who I've spoken about before, and the story was by Courtney Lilly. Very odd. Um, it's rare that you get a story by credit on any episodes of Arrested Development. Generally, they tend to just be straight up written. Uh, and this episode was directed by Paul Feig, uh, best known to people as the director of um, the box office hit of the Summer Ghostbusters, would oh. people say? Sure, Freaks and Geeks. Oh, I knew him I as... Know, I think we know him from Freaks and Geeks. I knew Geeks. him as a teacher on Sabrina the Teenage Witch. It's cool that he had a career after that. <laughs> I think you just outed yourself a little bit, Kyle, there. Um, no, like, uh, oh, like, two months ago, my wife was watching Sabrina the Teenage Witch, and I was like, that teacher looks sure, so familiar. Sure. No, like... Yeah, your wife was watching Well, <laughs> you know how it is. Your wife watches something, and that means you watch it. And um, I remember just, yeah, like, she watched, like, five episodes in a row, and I was just like, that guy looks so familiar. And at first, I thought it was maybe, like, a young Kyle Dunnigan, um, because mm. Paul Feig looks really, like, a lot younger. But, uh, no, it took me a while to figure yeah. it out. But, yeah. You know, I think it's a, a more accurate version of what you said is um, your wife doesn't watch something, so you no longer watch them. <laughs> I found that, um, you know, my horror <laughs> movies are now limited to, like, young Frankenstein and Hocus Pocus uh, these days. Terrifying. Oh, Hocus Pocus. <laughs> Such a terrible film. Yeah, it's awesome. Um, <laughs> anyway, this is the first of three episodes that he'll direct this season. He directed... Uh, the season one finale last time round, mm-hmm. um, he will direct the uh, season three premiere, I think, uh, Cabin Show. I think that's the first episode of season three. Um, and so we still have two more Paul Feigs to look forward to, uh, including Burning Love and Ready, Aim, Marry Me, uh, sure. which is an episode that people sometimes don't like. Mm. Um but yes um <laughs> so i'll give you the summary of the episode uh which is uh as such which is a bluth competitor offers job a job before their annual grudge softball game lucille pulls some army strings for buster medication becomes lindsay but yeah the main plot is is about stan sitwell played here by a begley jr this is the first time we get to meet him um also in ghostbusters he... it's yeah, small part in yeah. Ghostbusters. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I guess Paul Feig must have liked him. Mm-hmm. It's weird because Sitwell was established in the pilot as a rival firm, and this is the first time that we're really getting to know like um, that there is a rival out there to the Bluth Company. In the pilot, it was set in a. Com- it kind of was just like a because obviously you know the pilot didn't have any standing sets, so it was just this one shot in like an office. Uh, Job actually did try to join Sitwell, um, and when asked for a resume, he released a dove and uh, set up a fireball, a fireball 
and that that was his resume. Um, he did not get the job then. But this episode, we begin with um, the narrator explaining, um, you know, who Stan Sitwell is. Um, and I like how straight away Michael, um, <laughs> he's lying about why they're having the meeting um, at the house. They're having it there so that obviously um, George Senior can overhear what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the many concessions that Michael makes to his father in this episode. It really is an episode about um, Michael and George Senior and to a slightly lesser extent Tobias and George Senior. Um, and he says knock on wood, except he doesn't actually knock on wood when he, he goes to indicate that the house is solid and he very gently kind of like just feels the wall. Um, and then when he says knock on wood, Job actually does knock on wood, which causes uh, like the TV frame to fall down and knock a, a speaker off. And also a pipe to and, fall and hit George Sr. in the head as well. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 like how, I like how when they go up to show you George Sr., they, they do like, um, is it, does it sound like five seconds earlier or something? Yeah, right. And they, they, jump, they jump back just so they can do the, uh, the pipe falling on George Sr. joke. Hmm. And I also like uh, I like here how maybe is right in at the very beginning of this episode. <laughs> there has been some times in in the last few episodes where maybe kind of has been a little absent from mm-hmm. storylines. Um, so it's nice to see her here. And of course, she's she's telling Michael that uh, George Michael is is off with Anne. And um, you know, I love I love Michael's exactly. I love Michael's I love Michael's dialogue. <laughs> Where he explains that if Sitwell asks about George Michael, which I don't think is the thing that's going to happen, but he'll have to have this kind of conversation where he's like, "Where's your son? He's out with Anne. Who's Anne? Don't ask me. I'm just the boy's father." <laughs> right. He's like so kind of already mad. I, I'm noticing too that like the prominence of the blue hands all over the walls, and like they're not even mm-hmm. being referred to, and. That's like just fun to see. Yeah, yeah, that was one of the big. Um, and this was actually one of the first episodes I saw when it was on Fox. I only caught a couple episodes, but that was one of the big clues to me that like, oh, you really have to pay attention watching this show. It's uh, there are a lot of jokes <laughs> yeah. that are carried. Why over. are the blue handprints everywhere? Yeah, uh, with the question in your mind. In fact, uh, I'm, I'm sure it's on one of the commentaries. It might have been on the commentary for Ready Aim Marry Me, where. Um, Mitch Herberts points out that for the from from the start of season two to the end of season three, every single episode contains a shot that has handprints somewhere amongst it. So there's always some blue handprints in the background whenever they're in the house. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's never an angle in that house that doesn't include a blue handprint. Wow. Uh, though at, at this particular point, the Blue Man Group story is kind of over because mm-hmm. Tobias has got a restraining order <laughs> that's been given to him. Uh, so he is no longer um, bluing himself uh, every single episode, uh, and I love I love Job's anger at the start of this. Where the weird thing is, Job is at this meeting. He's he's even though he's no longer the president, uh, even right. though Michael has stated that he doesn't know why Job is in the company, basically. Yeah. Uh, and Job is is kind of like there, and he's dressed in a suit, and he's super angry at Sitwell, starting out with "screw Sitwell" as his right. first kind of comment, and you know, <laughs> which is which is kind of the the behavior that gets him the job at Sitwell when he uh, yeah. you know Sitwell confides in him that he shouldn't have <laughs> taken the offer, and Job right away 
you know, F you. Yeah. Also, Job is wearing a really nice, expensive suit throughout these episodes. And, like, it's funny just those are jokes that come back. Like, I just laugh whenever I see Job in a really expensive suit because I know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, of course he is. Come on. (laughs) Well, I love how angry he gets that, you know, he's coming in here telling us how to build our houses, how to raise our kids. And Sitwell hasn't done any of this yet. (laughs) So I don't know why Job is so angry before the meeting's even started. And then, obviously, See, this is where the the the, the fridge kind of gets pushed into the wall a little bit, and um, Michael insists that that's why they need George Michael because he's got these powerful little fingers, <laughs> uh, which kind of goes against everything we know about George Michael. He's he's not really mm-hmm. considered kind of physically powerful in any way, so I don't know that he'd be able to help out in this situation. Um, right. And I like that that maybe he's only angry that George Michael is with Anne because. Um, he needs she needs him to write this essay about the old man in the sea uh, and I like how Michael offers to help maybe explains so you have to read this and then explain it and this is important you have to say it in my own words okay smart but not too smart let's have a four syllable max but like yeah like like Biff Tannen you can't make it too smart right because <laughs> then the teacher will know you're cheating yeah she says let's have a f- come on McFly let's have a four syllable max is her uh, is her thing <laughs> Uh, and I love how kind of lax the parenting is here from the Funkes, as Tobias, you know, says that he he believes in letting children uh, learn from their mistakes. Uh, and as he, of course, he says this as he leans on the refrigerator and it falls, but apparently not in, on to, into the garage. And then he says, knock on wood. And then, of course, we hear it fall uh, into the garage. Well, and implying it's a mistake he's made before, so he hasn't <laughs> learned from it, right? Because, he, well, at least it didn't fall into the garage this time. Yeah. And it falls right into the garage. And and I love how um, any, any role that Tobias goes up for, he's always number two. He had a very big storyline in season one where he was going for Frightened Inmate number two. And this time around, he's going for Confidence Man 2. Oh, yeah, I didn't see the first Confidence Man. (laughs) Which I think is a a great gag. Uh, And then, you know, he's talking about plotting his route to the studio. And uh, this is where maybe comes up with uh, today is help your dad follow his dream day. Uh, Which is kind of one of her more uh, transparent attempts to get out of going to school. And then obviously Tobias is happy because he can use the uh, the carpool lane. Uh, and then Job says, as he did in the pilot, that he needs ice. Um, which I don't know why he's obsessed with ice, but uh, he gets it. It's, I guess it sort of pays off later on, sort of. I mean, they do have ice at one point, but <laughs> yeah. it's, I don't know. It's, it's an odd way it pays off. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I do kind of just like how Joe isn't really thinking. Like, this entire conversation is going on around him, and he really doesn't care. He's just concerned about getting ice right. for his drink. And we meet Lindsay here, who is uh, kind of, I would say, very sleepy, she seems. Very kind of like... Uh, half awake. Sedated. Yeah, and uh, yeah. we find this is because um, she's taking Timosil, which she actually does twice, um, because, you know, Timosil can uh, can lead to short-term memory loss, uh, much like forget-me-nows. Huh. Uh, so she ends up taking two, uh, two Timosil, uh, one after the other, uh, and we get a very brief flashback to the um, uh, Dr. Funke's 100% natural 
uh, good, good time family band solution, <laughs> whatever it's called. Um, <laughs> yeah, where we see the uh, the young maybe say Timosil may decrease your sex drive, and then of of course you know Lindsay insists that since she's been taking Timosil, she's getting on fine with her husband, <laughs> uh, which you know that is one of the the purposes of the the drug. But Michael sees straight through this and he says you're taking it for the side effects, aren't you? And then. This is probably one of my favourite things to do with the army storyline. I'm not a big fan of the army storyline with Buster, simply because I think it gets very confusing as to whether or not he's just pretending to be in the army or if he's actually in the army. Um, And by this point, we are very firmly ensconced in the idea that he is in the army. Um, And um, (laughs) we have a letter which is read out by Michael when he says, Sergeant Blank is treating me very blank. And it looks like I'll be shipping off to blank in about a blank. I blank you, mother, Buster. <laughs> and I like how they redact the fact that he said, I'm guessing he signed it, I love you, mother, and they redacted the word love, which just seems like a very extreme thing for the army to do in terms of uh, redacting letters. Well, it's also kind of, kind of thematically appropriate, too, because Buster's own feelings about his mother are pretty confused, you know? I mean, he does love his mother, he is a mama's boy, but at the same time, when it, later on, or is it earlier than this, I can't keep it straight, when he, um, when he has Job's ventriloquist dummy, it's, you know, the truth comes out, right? So he yeah. does have that kind of confused love-hate, so it's not totally clear what might have been <laughs> in that redacted part of the letter. Yeah. Also, um, Could have been either. Wasn't the whole point of him going into the army to sort of redact the love of mother in a way um so in addition to the way i'm saying it is appropriate that uh the idea of love is redacted in the army um i just love the image of the drill sergeant yelling at buster marching and he's just like giggling the whole time (laughs) (laughs) oh he's delighted he's 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 having the time of his life like like his father in prison you know michael says you guys wore matching outfits till he was 12 this is something that will be contradicted in the episode mother boy 30 um, where it is seen that they, they wore them way past when he was 12. Uh, and the narrator tells us, uh, even once in a magazine cover that he'd been mocked within the family for years. Uh, and we get a cutaway to the, uh, the Balboa, Balboa Bay window magazine. Um, and I love the, the, the byline, which is, uh, why I want to marry my mother by Buster Bluth, age 10. Um, which it's just, I, I think it's funny that they set this up because, like, Balboa Bay Window becomes a, a bigger running joke as season two goes on and throughout season three. Mm-hmm. And it it mm-hmm. kind of really um, makes the... Re- like, I'm not saying that the relationship has been healthy to this point, but it really adds another layer of kind of unhealthy kind of connotations to the relationship, even more so uh, as the season goes on. This is possibly my favourite ever exchange between... Lucille and Michael, where she says, Get me a vodka rocks. And he says, Mom, it's breakfast. And she goes, And a piece of toast. Um, <laughs> I love how quickly she kind of, um, she kind of knows that maybe it's wrong to have vodka for breakfast, but maybe a piece of toast will make it better. Sure. And I'll... And George, uh, or uh, Job is already drinking. <laughs> so, like, it's funny that <laughs> yeah. he points out, Mother, why are you drinking? And is completely ignoring the fact that Job is drinking. Yeah. Well, who cares what Job's doing? Yeah, I mean, Job's already, like, dressed for the work day, you know, so I guess maybe he's <laughs> just true, having, yeah. like, a, a morning drink. Um, and then 
I I love <laughs> love how everyone keeps referring to Stan Sitwell as a hairless freak. Um, and trying <laughs> yeah. to make out like they're better than him, uh, particularly when you know Lucille says, "Why is he always waving those giant ten million dollar checks over his head every time some?" And Michael's like, uh, "Finish the thought." <laughs> Go ahead, finish it. <laughs> every time some children's <laughs> hospital needs funding, uh, and I just, I just love, I love that. Particularly as when Lucille says that that they're not that starved for attention, we get, we get a quick cut back to the uh, Balboa Bay window. Um, <laughs> And then, of course, uh, you know, when Sitwell does arrive, um, and I want to say Ed Begley Jr., he really kind of plays uh, this character, like, really well. Like, he... Because he, he, they they kind of... Before he arrives, this whole, like, hairless freak and, you know, the, the giant checks and everything, they kind of... You start to get an impression of what they think the character is and how they view him. And when he actually arrives, you know, he turns out just to be, like, a, a, a very generous kind of you know a very generous guy who just kind of wants to help them um yeah very similar to lucille too as a matter of fact the <laughs> yeah. way that ends up playing out yeah well, what yeah. you said before about the we're not so starved for attention that's pretty much the crux of this episode is the fact that everyone except for right now the medicated um uh, Lindsay. Lindsay. Lindsay, thank you yeah. Every single person in this episode is completely starved for attention, <laughs> uh, usually from a father figure. Yes, or brother. Yeah, um, and I yeah. like I like that um, I like that we get kind of something that's been a joke that was never really acknowledged is the fact that it's called Sudden Valley, and uh, mm-hmm. you know I like that he he says it conjures up the image of a sinkhole, which is also you know that is what will happen to the house at the end of the season it will sink into a sinkhole right. so it's kind of just setting up that gag as well um and he's thinking you know paradise gardens and i love that when he says paradise gardens we get a quick cut to outside and we get the wind whistling by and we think well like sudden valley or paradise gardens aren't going to make that model home look kind of any better and we we get a quick flashback to some you know Michael George Senior stuff from the office where where you know he he comes up with this phrase where he says uh, are you taking stupid pills which later in the episode he will he will refer back to this and say are you taking stupid pills again I love how basically George Senior turning down good ideas from Michael was a management tool and I don't understand how that's meant to help him but. Uh, that's kind of like the stubbornness of George Senior is is he'll say no to something. Uh, which he even admits, he says that was a hard one to say no to, as Mike after Michael's left the room. That is one of my uh, one of my favorite things about episodes like this is um, the whole attraction repulsion thing that's always going on between the siblings and the the Bluth boys and their father, or in um, Buster's case, the mother. Right, it's always I want the approval of this other person, um, but also I don't want them to know that I want their approval. And I think that's really captured perfectly in the uh, the scene where Sitwell gives Job the baseball glove, and he angrily <laughs> throws it against the wall, and then goes and tenderly picks it back up. So um, we get a lot of that that in this episode. Yeah, there is. I mean, there is also you know obviously you know the two older boys are always trying to get the approval of George Sr. And Lindsay and Buster are always trying to get the approval of Lucille. Uh, Though in this episode, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Lindsay is so heavily medicated that she's getting, you know, she's not really looking for the approval of anyone. So it's kind of an argument for drugs, right? Yeah, well, yeah. 
It's certainly an argument <laughs> yeah, for taking I mean, some Timocil or some Xanatab or Euphorazine, yeah. any of those those uh, great drugs. At this Absolutely. particular point, we find out why Stan is there, and he's proposing that they build 450 homes, but they have one given to a disadvantaged family. <laughs> Which Job sees uh, as the other 449 families living in fear. And this is the first occurrence of him <laughs> saying, come on. And, and then, of course, this is the point where Stan Sitwell's eyebrow falls off into the bowl of candy beans. And I love when Stan says, I always carry a spare. And Job replies, well, I hope you also carry a spare bowl of candy beans. I, I don't know why he's so angry at this, but uh, he definitely is. And then, obviously, Michael is impressed with the offer. And he says he's going to run it upstairs, which... Uh, you know, is not a, a phrase that most people are familiar with. Um, so he right. sees this and he, he kind of stops and he goes, so to speak, just to kind of almost throw people off the scent of what he's actually doing. Um, and obviously, you know, George Sr. doesn't really approve. And the narrator tells us that their old dynamic has returned. Um, and this is where George Sr. also calls him a hairless freak. Um uh, saying thank God we have Job on our team, and this is where Michael says Job doesn't really do that much for our team. I, I think it's weird because um, George Senior here seems to think that Stan Sitwell is going to spend fifteen million and build four hundred and fifty houses just so that he can find out the batting order um, for their softball game on Saturday. And I have to say, I don't ever get the logic in this because. I don't. I, I I sort of understand that George Senior is always trying to push Michael to get his approval, but this just seems like a crazy idea that has absolutely no foundation and doesn't make any sense. I actually have a I have a little bit of a theory on this, and it's um I don't know I just so you know I'm a high school English teacher, and I actually just finished teaching um, Death of the Death of a Salesman recently, and um, in that book Willie Loman keeps pushing his son Biff Loman to excel at sports, but never puts any value into getting good grades or anything like that. And of course, Biff Lohman ends up being a failure. Um, and I'm not saying that, you know, the writers and, and Paul Feig are thinking about Death of a Salesman as they're writing this. But, you know, with with um, Job, you do see this basically an executive who's all bluster. He has no actual ability. Um, and what actual ability he does have is in something like sports. And so, I don't know, it's it's still kind of cloudy in my mind, but I'm wondering if there's some kind of critique going on here of how American business is run and how government is run and how importance is put on being this, like, blowhard, blustery figure that doesn't really do anything well. <laughs> and meanwhile, Michael, who's actually good at his job, ends up getting kicked basically by the wayside, right? It's um, funny that you talk about that because my notes are all centered around a comparison of Job and Donald Trump. <laughs> I was just thinking about, about that as I was talking. Especially with the softball uh, situation going on with how he's treating the female athletes. Um, but yeah, yeah no, right. I, I think that's a good, um, good uh, sort of view of that. And it's... You know, with with the idea, what I think uh, to the original point, which is why is George Senior really focusing on that softball game over everything else, is because the softball game is something that they can win. The um, uh, <laughs> the development and all that stuff that's like big boy business, and they are failures at big boy business, mm -hmm. and they do not have control over that. And so, just like you know. Um, complete denial runs throughout the entire family 
that's sort of what uh, George Sr., I think, is clinging on to, is that denial that, like, well, clearly he's not here for business because we have that <laughs> covered. He's here for the softball game because that's what – because really that's what he cares about. He doesn't care about the business side. So, therefore, Sitwell must be caring about that. Oh, there's actually evidence of that in that scene um, because at one point um... – I forget who says it, either Michael or, or George, but somebody says, uh, we do two things well. We can build houses and we can play softball. And then he, like, hits the wall and something falls, and he says, well, at least we can play softball, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, well, it's interesting because when we actually see the softball game, we see, we see that George Sr. keeps doing the no-batter thing but saying no-hair over and over again as his catcher <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. in an attempt to kind of stir sit well. And obviously, you know... Um, you know, this is where we see that George Sr., you know, used it to kind of needle Sitwell, uh, but Sitwell used it to raise funds, um, which, <laughs> right. you know, and yeah. I, I like how, um, you know, George Sr. gets the third strike by <laughs> saying to Sitwell, I think one of your orphans is heading towards the street, uh, which is kind <laughs> of, you know, one of the, kind of a very underhanded move, um. And obviously, it's funny that George Sr. says that um, he, he tells him to go down there and tell Sitwell to screw himself. And then when Michael gets back down, Sitwell is gone. And Job says, I told him to screw off. So they're both kind of using similar language. And then he goes, but he offered me a job. Uh, and then we get the first of what will be many jokes with Sitwell, which involve his eyebrows not being put on his face correctly, <laughs> where he says... You look surprised. And Sitwell goes, oh, I'm sorry, I must have put it on too high. And then he kind of just lowers his eyebrow. Uh, which seems like a lot of effort, quite frankly, to be constantly moving your own fake eyebrows so that people understand what your expression is. Uh, in a later episode, Job will steal those eyebrows just because it makes him feel more dressy. Um, <laughs> and I, I like Stan Sitwell's kind of saying, you know, you got gumption, you speak your mind. Realising that this was a bad offer. I don't think... I don't think that having one house for an underprivileged family out of 450 is that bad of an offer. But, you know, I like that Sitwell kind of goes along with it a little bit here. I think it, it brought enough sort of plausible deniability in the storyline to the point where you could still go along with the idea where maybe he is really trying to <laughs> yeah. the softball team stuff. <laughs> yeah. Because, it, you know what I mean, it seems kind of ridiculous that he would offer Job a job and stuff like that. So you're right, it is ridiculous. And I think the writer's... That was a conscious choice because, you know, otherwise there'd be no chance in hell that he is actually trying to play for the uh, softball game or uh, manipulate the softball game. But I think that gives enough of uh, evidence to keep you in suspense. Yes. Yeah, we get we get evidence over and over again that Sitwell is a much, much better business person than anybody in the Blue family. However, <laughs> he does sometimes have the same kind of drive to be rivals with the Bluths as George does. Yeah. Um, but I think most of the time it's George goading him into it. It's like, oh yeah, my son's going to stick it to your daughter. <laughs> and then that's what causes him to, yeah. you know, so it's, it's, it's all, it's all, you know, of the Bluths doing that Sitwell has any kind of rivalry with them. And at this particular point, uh, Job reveals he accepted the job. And that Sitwell is waiting outside, and he says... We're going to swing by his wig maker. His just-woke-up-hair is finally ready. And I like how Michael says... You're really going to do this? And once again, we get some classic Bluth cross-talk where Job goes... It's ready, Mike. 
They're only going to hold it for 24 hours. And I, I, loved, I love that Joe thinks he's talking about the wig when obviously he's not. Right. But it's just, I love Will Arnett's delivery of that line as well. Um, and in the other half of the kind of, the, the main B-plot, we get uh, the start of what will become a storyline that runs all the way to the very final episode of season three. Uh, and then also recurs in season four as well, which is Tantamount Studios and maybe Funke becoming an executive. Um, and as Tobias and maybe arrive, uh, you know, Tobias, Tobias basically stops the stair car at the gate and then he goes and home we go. And I love, <laughs> love how he's, he hasn't like mapped it out on like a computer or anything. He's literally driven there, stopped at the gates and he's about to turn around. <laughs> and once maybe realizes that this is going to mean she's going to have to go to English class, uh, she says, "You can't do a U-turn on your dream," which is such a it's such a perfect a way line. of appealing to um, you know Tobias's kind of weakness, which is the idea that he should follow this dream to be an actor, um, you know, which obviously she was exploiting anyway. But now she's really drilling down on it, um, and I like I like that she says that they should get on a lot and talk up the Funke name. Um, now, yeah, that's one of my favorite things in this episode. The uh, <laughs> he's constantly fumbling with the uh, the water cooler, and then um, you know every time it's oh this fuke this fuke. <laughs> then when it comes finally time for the audition, he says Tobias. He doesn't even mention the name fuke. Yeah, yeah um, exactly. But I I I, I well, love that I just, she says t- just to mention. Yes? Um, I'm sorry, uh, David Cross's physical comedy. It, it's something that he doesn't get credit for enough, and he doesn't get to do enough. Yeah. Just like hit the, the, what CJ was talking about with the water cooler. Uh-oh, what was that? That's all right, I just had a slight interruption. Um, so yeah, just uh, you know what uh, CJ was mentioning with the water cooler, just uh, that is something that I don't know if any of the other actors on the show could have really done. You know, just, um, it, yeah, his physicality of making just taking off a water jug from a uh, water cooler and spilling it on people. Turns it really. He also funny, he he, he mimics um, uh, Liza Minnelli because when Liza Minnelli does some of the Vertigo stuff, she'll always say, "We're okay, we're okay, we're okay." And as as he's holding this oh. water bottle and spilling it, he keeps saying, "I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm okay." Uh, <laughs> oh, I didn't notice that's that. Funny. That's yeah. good. I yeah. forgot. I didn't know that. Yeah, that's. And good. I like that's that good. maybe says, oh, "Start so talking, funny. talking you up around the water coolers," and literally all he does is go and change the water at the water cooler. <laughs> he doesn't. He doesn't understand that as just like a turn of phrase. He just literally thinks that's what she means. Now it's yeah. worth mentioning at this. Literally embracing the water cooler. It's worth mentioning at this point that um, Tobias did actually have a couple of extra lines that were cut from this particular scene. Where um, you know he, he says something about an agent, and maybe he's like, "Have you got an agent?" And he's like, "No, no, it's just it's just what we say." Um, and then he goes, uh, and then he goes, "After I get this part, I'll be beating them off." Um, which <laughs> I don't know why they cut that out because it's which, a funny joke, but I maybe it was a little bit too explicit. Although he said he's um, in past episodes said some stuff that um, I, you know, I, and he no, will in f- there's no mistaking what yeah he will in future yeah. episodes too. So <laughs> um, right. in- including the very next episode where he talks about taking a chubby. Um, so, <laughs> oh, right, right, right. Uh, but I-, I love how we get to see Andy Richter here, kind of like uh, dropping his burrito. It looks like. <laughs> Um, <laughs> yeah. And I like that. I like that. And, uh, that's a grinder. Yeah, oh, I think it's a meatball grinder. Well, uh, yeah. <laughs> all the complicated sandwiches of America. That's fine. Um, yeah. 
Uh, oh yeah. Oh, is that a cultural difference? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, we just put stuff between two slices of bread and call it a sandwich, and then walk away. We don't really go into making things more complicated. Well, what that. you what you might not know is that even within like a hundred mile radius in the U.S., you might find that people call it totally different things. Um, yeah. You know, in New York, it's what a I don't know, a hoagie or something. <laughs> and then it's they call them grinders in Connecticut. They call them heroes in other places. It's uh, yeah. It's, but it's he, madness. It's absolute madness. Andy Richter uh, drops some food, and he is used as the example, you know, of uh, the, one of the biggest stars, you know, America's treasures. Uh, of course, he will he will return <laughs> in season three. Um, playing the other four uh, Richter quintuplets. Um, mm-hmm. And I like how maybe kind of uh, says to her dad, you're, you're auditioning for the part of a confidence man. Let's try a little confidence. Uh, and this is when the security guard, which is who's played by Craig Robinson, uh, overhears them and he says, you say confidence man? I'm up for that part too. And I like how Tobias is like, uh, oh. <laughs> like he he's kind of doesn't know how to react <laughs> to that. Uh, and the guard says, good luck to you. Um, really quick, though, at this point, what show did Andy Richter have where he was, was it Andy Richter Controls the Universe? Uh, he, I mean, uh, 2005, I'm not sure. I think it might have been Andy Richter PI might have been. I'm just curious. Was that also on Fox? That was a show. I didn't even know that was a show. You didn't know that was the name of a show? <laughs> I've yeah, it was. never heard of that. No. Oh yeah, there's Andy controls the universe. Andy Richter PI. Quit. Uh, the, wasn't wasn't the quadruplets? Was Maybe. another <laughs> quadruplets? Yeah. yeah, was another one. No quintuplets. Sorry, quintuplets. Um, which, I was, quintuplets which is obviously yeah, yeah. why the, the joke uh, continues. Yeah. It's a good thing he left Conan's side. You know that rich flourishing <laughs> career. Well, if, oh no! What if you've listened to this podcast? Well, I mean, late, later on, obviously yeah. the 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 joke is that um, you know, uh, I think it's his brother says that you know they'll maybe one day they'll find a vehicle for you. <laughs> but yeah, I'm, I'm not sh- I'm not sure yeah. what exactly <laughs> was going on with Andy Richter um, in at this particular point. But yeah, he's had a lot of kind of shows that last a season and then get cancelled yeah and well, I just imagine him having a lot of spare time around the studio <laughs> and just see him walking around yeah like how much of it was like documentary style they actually just happen to catch him in the wild well and the, and the, <laughs> funny. the funny thing about that is uh, you know he mentions how America's biggest stars are there and you know Andy Richter might be maybe not at this point in 2005 but he might be the um, you know smallest name of the cameos that are in this episode you know between yeah. Ed Begley Jr. and uh, yeah go ahead and Jeff Garlin and yeah I'd, I'd say yeah like of yeah. the cameos um, his character is obviously himself, so he's the biggest. But yeah, I would say of the names involved, he probably is the smallest. Now, when we get back to Michael, he is now president again, uh, which George Michael, as he arrives at the office, is surprised to see. Um, and, you know, he asks, What do you think of when you hear the word Sudden Valley? To which um, <laughs> George Michael says, Salad dressing, I think. But for some reason, I don't want to eat it. Right. And then when he says... But Paradise Gardens. Yeah. And he goes, okay, I can, I can see marinating a chicken in that. And I love how kind of that's his, his judgment for what, how you should name a development is based on whether or not he can see it as a kind of a thing to cook food in. Um, it's like a very kind of 
It does sound more appealing. I mean, yeah. it does sound tastier. <laughs> yeah, but it's just like a very kind of specific kind of way to to think about those names. Um, and this is when we find out that Joe's behavior um, in the previous year's softball game uh, led to some, I don't know, I think they, they say lawsuits. <laughs> um, and basically, Job yeah. is kind of just bumping into any women that are on the team at, 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 that are kind of possible. And then towards the end... Speaking of Trump. Yeah, and then towards the end, he, he basically pours Gatorade over four or five women. Or water, maybe. I don't know. Uh, I can't tell. Michael sums yeah. it up by saying, we lost our entire outfield and a couple of court cases. Uh, and I like that George Michael builds Anne up by saying, you know who'd be great and not at all litigious? Uh, which I, I don't know how he knows she's not litigious, but, you know... <laughs> uh, well, if anything, puns is here too, though. Is uh, he he says I think you should be playing the field. Yeah, you know, like I didn't, like completely didn't catch it in this uh, until I watched it again today. Well, it's a good way to think of Anne as as a backup. <laughs> That's the important thing. But yeah, I mean, if anything, I would think Anne would be litigious. Everything that we see from her and her family later on, you know, they like are so outraged by anything that's not Christian music, they burn records, you know? So it's yeah, actually it does seem like a, that maybe she would be litigious. An odd choice. Um, yeah, it's uh, just well, a, f- a funny I... a funny thing about how things have changed since then. My uh, My wife was in the room while that scene was happening with the, uh, you know, him dumping the water on <laughs> women's chests. And um, her reaction was something like, ooh, I don't remember that. That's that's a little bit, that's a little bit too far. And I'm like, yeah, I don't think anybody thought that was too far for a comedy show at that point. Yeah. I think we're really yeah. looking at it with uh, contemporary eyes. Um, yeah, maybe it would just, it definitely would have been bad timing if it aired at that point. But but also, Job is a reprehensible person right yeah like or you're not supposed to like him (laughs) but um going back to the litigious thing with with egg um is that i think it's not necessarily that her family's not litigious i think it's more kind of a jab at the fact that you don't have to worry about anyone sexually harassing her yes Sure, true. Yeah. Yeah. Like Job's not going to be lunging at her. Although later, Job does. So. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. Um, well, I do, I mean, I just, I do love when Michael's like, let's make Anne the backup, okay? That's a very good way to think of her as a backup. <laughs> yeah, right. That's, I mean, so far, that's probably about the kind of, the most kind of obvious that he's been in, for his feelings about uh, Anne. Um, and I just, I love when this scene just finishes with George Michael saying, maybe now I'll get a kiss. And Michael kisses kisses George Michael. <laughs> he kisses him right on the cheek. And he just stops. And then George Michael goes, I meant for man. And Michael's just like, yes, I just wanted to get in there first. I, I love <laughs> yeah. how he kind of covers that so quickly. But it's just like kind of, then I, you just have to listen for Michael Sarah because before he leaves the room, he just kind of goes, uh, oh, and then just kind of like leaves the room. And as he does it, it's, it's like a, re- a perfect reaction to it. And then obviously Michael decides that he also needs to get Lindsay on the team. So he, he calls her up. Um, and obviously she feels the intended cons- the intended effect of Timasil, where she says, count me and Michael, happy to help the team. Uh, which is... A ve- and then she comes to the hair with her phone. <laughs> yeah. Which, I, I, I mean, the entire of this episode is basically Portia de Rossi acting completely out of character. Um, and given how well her character's been established, I think it like, it's an endless source of jokes, basically, because just the way she does it. 
And then obviously this is where Job walks back in um, because, because he's had to quit Sitwell. Um, uh, and, you know, he Sitwell wants a bunch of work ideas and obviously Job wants to quit and become president. Um, and I like I like how subtly Michael kind of wants to push Job away, um, particularly as he's like he says things that are kind of like um, particularly when Job says, you want me to succeed at Sitwell. And Job, as as Job is attempting to hug Michael, he goes, uh, he goes, I really want you to be over at Sitwell, <laughs> which isn't him saying he wants <laughs> it to be a success. He just wants it to be over at Sitwell. Uh, which Job seems to take as some kind of compliment because he, you know, he goes back. But, you know, I just, I kind of love, I love the kind of rivalry here between these two brothers, um, which is, I mean, it's kind of like at a bit of a lower level than it's been in previous episodes because Michael actually starts helping Job. Um, But obviously, you know, the end goal is just to keep Job away from from, uh, the Bluth company. As much as possible. Yeah, that's one of also to prove his father wrong. Well, yeah, that's a key thing too. He wants right. to prove his father wrong. Yeah, you know, well, that's, in a way, proves him right. That's one of the <laughs> um, my favorite recurring things about uh, about these characters is that like a solid half. You know, I don't have data in front of me, but I would be willing to bet is that a solid half of the problems they have is because of miscommunication. Because all these characters are just hearing what they want to hear and not really listening to one another. And, you know, that, that whole thing with Job is a great example of that. Um, and it's all tied in the whole sibling rivalry, trying to impress the brother, trying to impress the father, pushing them away at the same time. The perfect episode for two brothers to appear on. Yeah. Darren, great planning <laughs> on, on your part. Uh um, it was my idea. At, well, at, at this particular point, we get to see that Luce... To take from the Michael playbook. <laughs> yeah. Is my we, get to see, we get to see Lucille trying to get Buster out of the army. Um, you know, she apparently Oscar um, wants to take his place, but they won't have him. Uh, and we find out that he served as a, a croc spotter uh, on a swift boat in Vietnam. Uh, which doesn't feel like anything that Oscar would actually do. It feels very out of character, but, um, you know, yeah. I guess maybe uh, he was drafted. Although, obviously, Oscar seems like the kind of guy who would have sure. fled to Canada before being drafted. And so, you know, we... I, or I could imagine um, uh, the uh, George Sr. being drafted <laughs> and Oscar somehow in getting place. Oscar to take his place. Yes. Uh, oh, Sure. And why? Why a croc spotter? Why that? <laughs> like why? Why? Yeah, I would say I, like I yeah, you can't work in some kind of joke with seals or something to that. I mean, I don't know, but um, I yeah, do. That's... I do love that he can't spot any crocs either. He just keeps saying croc over and over again and realizes it's just a log. Um, and here we get some of Lucille's backstory filled in, kind of for the first time, because this is we really haven't. We don't know who Lucille is before she was Lucille Bluth. Uh, there have, there's been very kind of little in the way of backstory for her. We know a lot about George Senior uh, because we see so many flashbacks where he's teaching the kids lessons, or you know he's mm-hmm. he's he's kind of building prisons or whatever. But this is the first time we find out about Lucille, and apparently she was part of the USO. Uh, and we see a kind. Of, I like I like this clip where she's doing an act, and Bob Hope is on stage, which of course Bob Hope would be on stage, um, and. You know, she says she prefers an older man. And whoever is doing the Bob Hope impression, I don't know who it is, but they do a really good one where he says, I'm free after the show. And she says, 
<laughs> I said older Bob, not dead. And like I don't know if in the sixties people were thinking that Bob Hope was particularly old, because <laughs> um, I guess he always he yeah, always. Did. Didn't he die in like the late nineties? <laughs> yeah. I mean, he was—he uh, yeah. couldn't have been that old at the time. Yeah, I guess. I guess his act was just very old manish, so the joke kind of works in that way. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, and then this is we where we get J.K. Simmons, uh, one of the bigger names. Just kidding. Making a cameo here as uh, Sergeant Bill Anderson. Um, apparently, he was an, mm-hmm. an item with uh, with Lucille before she left him for Oscar. And obviously, we know that she ended up with George, so that fills in quite a lot of backstory there with Lucille. Yeah, and of course, this is where we get we get Tobias talking up the Funke name, <laughs> where he starts out saying uh, that Funke is some kind of something, which I love as an expression. Some kind of something is just so great, and then he talks about how <laughs> so Funke is all anybody's ever talking about. And then he ends up saying he's so sick and tired of hearing how brilliant Funke is. And then he ends up at overrated. We just move on. And it's just like, I like how he ends up basically talking himself down as the thing progresses. He goes from talking himself up to talking himself down. And while he's doing that... But also assuming that people are listening to him consistently throughout the same day to hear the narrative arc. <laughs> well, and of course the irony is, you know, spoiler alert, it ends up working just not the way he Yeah, ends. someone must have heard. Oh, yeah. Someone I'm Jeff uh Jeff Garland must have been walking past at some point. Um and this is where we get the start of maybe as an executive, probably one of my favorite things that they do with Alia Shawcat because it's it gives us so much to do in so many episodes. But I love so so how quickly she kind of falls into the lie. Like the guy, a guy walks in and he's like, is this your office? And she just picks up the nearest photo and goes, no, I'm just sitting behind someone else's desk pretending these are my kids. And it's just like such a, so quickly she she assumes the role. Um, And I just love it so much. She can spot opportunity. She knows when opportunity is not. Yeah. She just takes it. And I love that this all. Or she wasn't lying, though. No, that is exactly. That's exactly what she's doing. She wasn't lying. She she says it in such a way that people just believe her. Um, And I love that this only comes about because she just wants someone to do this book report for her. (laughs) Like, that's the only reason this ever happens is she just wanted somebody else to just do the book report. Um, and I like how this scene finishes with her saying that she needs a report by tomorrow before Jim. Lunch with Jim. Carrie. He's the Grinch guy. You're too young. And this, this will also become her recurring theme where she basically seems to age herself up and age everybody else down to make it more plausible that she would actually be working there. So within the, within the like first scene, she's immediately just started lying in so many ways, and it's just so perfect. I just love Alia Shawkat so much, and she's just so great at just doing this casual lying, uh, which even in one episode she says, uh, I'm lying for no reason now, (laughs) which is kind of a great revelation. Um, And I just want to talk about how Job burns through every single idea that Michael gives him in the space of like five minutes. I love how it's clear he doesn't actually understand what he's saying because at one point he says wireless crapability and that one's self-explanatory. So, much, just move so, on. My, so, so my fav- that's so my favorite line, um, you know, where he's like... 31, bamboo floor upgrades, cheaper, stronger. I can't read this word. 32, wireless crapability. That one explains itself. 33. And it, <laughs> it's, just, it's just how 
he kind of like even when he can't read the word he just keeps on going with i can't read this word <laughs> michael says that was six months of work you can't just blurt them all out at once uh and this is obviously when you know sitwell comes in saying that they you know he blew them away and he, he gives him the the catcher's mitt um and i love the flashback to to when job was in prison and the narrator telling us that Job's own father had only played catch with him once and it ended as badly as any game of catch could end. And of course, White Power Bill. <laughs> White Power Bill. R.I.P. White Power yeah. Bill. He, uh, he, he, st- <laughs> he screams out White Power as he, as he shivs Job. Um, and of course, you know, uh, you know, Stan is offering to play ball with him on Saturday. Uh, he says he has a neck hair fitting. This guy is like, for someone with no hair, he has got a lot of business going on with his hair. Um, and you know, this is this is the great thing. It's uh, the one percent problems. That's what. That yeah. Is. <laughs> um, and this, this is this, this is kind of a, a, the great dynamic that's set up in this episode where Job is giving all these ideas to Sitwell, which are then getting the approval of Sitwell. And of course, the ideas are Michael's ideas. So this means that Michael is getting the approval of Sitwell, which means he feels he can tell his father that these ideas were actually good ideas and he should have his father's approval. So this is a chain of people where these these ideas go through before Michael actually gets to the point where he thinks George Senior should, um, you know, should should be approving his ideas. And then, of course, um, this is where George Senior explains that, you know, Job is the best softball player in the league. Uh, and the narrator tells us that, you know, this is because he, he, he's gifted at sacrificing his body for the play. And of course... Uh, Which, yes, I think when he dives, you do see at one point his the, the tooth gets chipped, right? Yes. And that's that's a recurring yeah. thing. Yeah, here, it's a call... That they don't bother to explain in this episode. It's a call back to uh, Mr. Banana yeah. Grabber. Um, and right. you know, this is where he's, when he starts talking and saying, suck it, sit well, his, his tooth starts whistling. And of course, George senior goes, your Tweety bird dance just cost us a run. You moron. Um, you know, which I, even when Job is, you know, sacrificing his body for the play in a softball game between, you know, the blues company <laughs> and sit well, which I, I like, you don't, no one needs to be sacrificing anything for that. George Senior gets extremely <laughs> angry when they lose a run, um, you know. And this is where we find out George Senior is fine with Michael, um, you know, if he wins the game, that he will be comfortable with him running the company. Um, and then this is where Michael says, you know, I'll run the game and I'll show him that his little plan didn't work out. We can build houses and we can win games. And this is, of course, where we hear a crash in the distance as Michael taps on the, the side and then he says, we can win games. And um, we find out that Lindsay has been hit on the head by uh, the vent. Uh, and she isn't feeling it because apparently Timo Sill may cause numbness of the extremities. But Lindsay doesn't realise which game Michael is talking about, so it may also cause short-term memory loss. Um. Could we t- talk about Timasil for a second? Go because, for it. Uh, before we started the podcast, you brought up something interesting, um, Darren. You mentioned how, and I, I never, you know, thought about this, but um, how Timasil, actually, you know, in Spanish it would be Tiamo. I love Sil. Yeah. Sil? Seal? Is it a seal joke? I don't. <laughs> is it? Is this a? Cl- not so clever pun on seal. I don't. I don't. I don't know what they're trying to accomplish there. I don't know. I mean, I, I think. 
you know, when it was first established as a as a joke, I think it was just for the idea of, um, you know, making fun of wellness drugs. Uh, obviously, when right. when when they right. when they named the different wellness drugs, you know, like Xanatab or Euphorazine, it seems like the writers just had fun making up these names. Uh, and I think it's just a coincidence that Timasil, you know, finishes with something that sounds a little bit like Seal. Uh, and obviously, yeah. I mean, at this particular point, because, you know, Buster is about to lose his hand in uh, two, three episodes time, uh, there might be, you know, there might be an uh, an idea that maybe, you know, they, they, they had the word seal in there um, as like a, as a, a kind of call forward to that. Um, but I'm not sure. Uh, you know, you could sometimes you can never tell with the rest of development if they're being super clever or if it's just a coincidence. Yeah, yeah, it's a yeah. you know, it's possible that they just dropped it in there to plant like a, some kind of like auditory seed for us. Like this is like an episode of Lost or something. But um, <laughs> yeah, that might have just the word seal might have been on their minds. Who knows? Yeah, it's also worth pointing out that some of these these um, symptoms that have been described here were originally given to Xanatab. Uh, because Timosil was no longer available, and, and and Euphorazine was the thing that took over from Timosil, but Xenotab was also um, kind of in there. Uh, but you know, I get a feeling that all these different wellness drugs are all essentially roughly the same thing, and they're just given different names, and they don't actually have any proper effect to what they they claim. Um, and then, of course, this is where Michael realizes he's going to need a a backup. Uh, and so, of course, he goes to find George Michael to call on the backup, uh, because that's how you should really think of Anne. And, uh, you know, George Michael insists that she has a low center of gravity and you can't knock her over. Uh, and it... Well, I th- you know, Michael, he's pretty sure he can. He can knock, him o- knock her over. Yeah. What a thing to say about your son's girlfriend, you know. Oh, I, can- I think I can knock her over. I won't, but I can. Yeah, it's funny because... Yeah, but realistically, I would assume I'd be able to knock my teenage son's girlfriend over. <laughs> like, I-, I would assume that. <laughs> it would be about fatherly pride. <laughs> be like, screw you, I think I can knock your girlfriend over. You little turd. I'll remember that in about 10 years, Kyle. Well, 12 yeah, years? Well, 12 years. Well, maybe 12 10. Years, yeah. Maybe 10. It's all those uh, hormones they're putting like a, in McDonald's these days, you know? Well, if my son, who's two for uh, you, uh, um, if he's anything like his father, it'll be 14. <laughs> <laughs> well, 16. It's funny here because this is where George Michael gives Anne the nickname The Wall, uh, which is one of the very few kind of nicknames that Michael never picks up on. Because most of the nicknames like Egg or Plant or uh, Yam, these are things that he says accidentally. When he's actually given a nickname, he never actually, he doesn't use it for Anne. Uh, it's worth noting as well that the final line that you were both saying about, you know, I could knock her over, but I won't. That seems to be like an ADR line because Michael is basically out of the room and it's just, yeah. just like an ADR line that they put on out of the end. And of course, Lucille visits William Anderson uh, the narrator tells us that he'd done three tours of duty of Vietnam, but the only memory he blocked out was being left by Lucille. Um, and she massages mm-hmm. his shoulders in kind of the same way that uh, that Buster does. So we find out where he gets it from. Um, though, of course, Oscar also massages shoulders in that way. So Yeah. Uh, 
mm-hmm. you know, the boy's uncle. Just going back to the what you said about the ADR, it seemed I, for some reason in this episode, I felt like there was a lot of yeah. ADR. No, there was. There um, really was. So it makes me think about was there rewrites or something like that. Um, but yeah, and uh, the then, whole the whole oh, line yeah, about um, Andy Richter and on all that kind of stuff that's obviously an ADR line because in the extended scene that whole scene ends differently and they cut away before that point it's just all on Andy Richter you just hear Tobias delivering the lines over the top but yeah there are a lot of lines on the back of people's heads in this particular episode or as they've left the room yeah. already yeah there is a lot of ADR I actually that's some, that becomes something of a feature in season 2 there is a lot of ADR stuff added uh, to the point where it, there's one episode where Michael says a line that's ADR'd and his mouth isn't even moving uh, it becomes kind of like that obvious. <laughs> I'd like to see that. Yeah, it's um, it's the episode where Buster loses his hand, and Michael says the line, "He's a very literal man," and as he says it, it he's not his his mouth isn't moving at all. Uh, he's pulling his mother off Doctor Fishman at the time. <laughs> um, but yeah, so there is a lot of ADR, and um, we actually get to see General Anderson asks um, <laughs> Lucille to go downtown. Um, which I feel kind of has <laughs> slightly more kind of sexual connotation to it, and for a very for no, a very for a very man. brief wow. moment in the scene, we are we are led to believe that that's what's going to happen, and then of course Lucille, after she says, "I haven't done that in thirty years," uh, she <laughs> she then starts singing. When you're alone and life is making you lonely, you can always go downtown. Yeah, that was sort of the almost like a dark moment in this show. I was because <laughs> yeah. I forgot about that joke. I'm like, what? Well, and he leans oh, he right. leans back in the chair too yeah. to almost yeah. like there is a very, present himself. Yeah, there, there is yeah. a very obvious kind of uh, intimation of of what's about to happen. Mm. And here we get, of course. The drill sergeant is yelling at Buster. Buster is giggling. And then the narrator tells us he was pulled out of combat training and put into USO training, which I'm not sure is a thing that actually exists. Um, but I just like how, yeah, he, he his gun is taken away and he gets a, a cane and a top hat and he just continues on marching, but in a, a slightly different time. Um, and we get a, we get a call back here to a, a visual gag from a few episodes ago as Job is in his chair and he has a man on his lap trying to demonstrate. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I don't think it's actually Gary because obviously Gary works for the Bluth Company. But I like how Job kind of, he, we, we catch him saying, it's not doing it right now. And I don't know why Joe keeps inviting these grown men to sit on his lap while he demonstrates something with his chair. It's a very kind of Yeah, odd. I mean... It's 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 played really well in that earlier episode because um, you know there's just the gag that Job is kind of accidentally hitting on gay men at the office. Yeah. When he, you know when he asked um, asked Michael if he's seen the newest poof, uh, Michael of course is like, "We well, can't call them that. We don't want another <laughs> lawsuit." Um, but, but yeah, it's almost like they're setting up like you know this implication that maybe Job is kind of gay. Of course, we know that's not true at all. So it's no, um, you know, it's more of Tobias's thing. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's just well, a, a funny kind of visual but, callback. I think to that earlier episode. But also, we we talked at length about he's how he's sexually harassing all the women on the field, yeah. and that sort of 
brings up back up. Maybe it's not actually like a sexual thing. Maybe it's just more like Job <laughs> has no impulse control and doesn't understand sexuality in a way. Or like, well, it's... come on. He lays on top of a woman in the outfield and says, um, "You know, why don't we wait to see if anything else pops up?" Uh, <laughs> yeah, but I mean, he knows he what he's doing. A... You are a Job apologist, <laughs> sir. Uh, you know, it's it's locker room talk, it's, uh, <laughs> baseball field talk. Oh, it's, that is a reference that is already I mean, dated. I, I, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, hey, uh, this is where Michael turns up and basically convinces Job. I, I think I think when he says, um, you know, why did he hire? Why do you think he hired you? And Job says he liked my ideas. And Michael immediately corrects him and says, they were my ideas. And no, he didn't. Uh, you know, he just wants him for the, the for the softball game. He's trying to make our family look foolish, and I love how Job immediately turns and says, "I knew you had bad ideas," and, and he's like, uh, "Nobody makes a fool of our family without my help." Yeah, um, and then we we see the payoff for the Fionke name being talked up, of course, uh, where Mort Myers um, meets with Tobias, and uh, <laughs> Tobias, when asked his name, says Tobias. And Mort Myers goes, he's too short, give it to the guard. Uh, and, of course, as, as, um, you know, as uh, he, he leaves, uh, he runs into Maybe, and he, he sees that she's got uh, the, 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 the reader's report back. And he says, what have you got there? And she goes, I really can't discuss it. And I like how immediately Maybe has this dynamic with Jeff Garland, where she doesn't want to cooperate with him. And this is something that will kind of continue for the rest of the run with these two characters is uh, she kind of is a bit kind of adversarial with him um, in a way. Uh, and then I, I love how he sees her name on it and says, you're the Fionke they've been talking about? What are you, like 15? <laughs> and then, of course, she says for the first time, marry me. And uh, that will become her catchphrase. And I love how Mort Myers puts himself inside that and he says, everyone thinks I look young too, <laughs> which... <laughs> I don't think it's ever been true of Jeff Garland. Yeah. I don't think there's been a point in Jeff Garland's career where people have no. thought no. that guy looks a little bit like a teenager. Uh, he, he, to me, he seems like he was born in his forties. And then, of course, <laughs> I, I love when Mort Myers says, "Who are you thinking about?" and she says, "Jude Law." The, you know, like she might just be thinking about Jude Law for like all the time. But I like how he again, she's not. Yeah, she's, she's not, not lying. lying right? She's just she, she really she really lies. wants to get to meet Jude Law. Uh, and I like how he's like, go, yeah, go young, young guy on the sea, <laughs> big spring breaker for us, CGI the fish, let's fast track this one. And I just love how quickly that decision is made to turn it into a young guy in the sea, uh, which of course it will go through further changes and become young man on the beach by the time that they're finished with it. Uh, and then of course, you know, this is where maybe manages to get a job for her dad. Uh, and where Mort decides to scream at someone about not waxing brand new cars. Um, Which, is that true? You shouldn't... No, I don't think You're that's true at all. Car. I don't think there's anything about not <laughs> waxing new cars. I, don't, I mean, I guess I would assume I a new car would have already been waxed. I don't know if there's any... I don't know about waxing cars. I don't own a car, so I don't know how they get waxed. I don't know what that's all about. This, uh, the, show is, the show is a little... It's how you get the hair off the car. Yeah, yeah right. The show is a little bit strange about cars. I mean, um, you know, I think I mentioned in the uh, the previous uh, podcast, the the previous episode of this podcast that I did, that it really gets the um, the Bluth family car right 
with the fact yeah. that they're driving like a 1990 something Mercedes S class. Um, but then, you know, from that point on, it's almost like they don't understand cars at all because, you know, when, um, when Michael buys the Corvette, uh, Stan Sitwell's like, well, you know, you can, I'll give you the money to bid on Sally, uh, if you tr- give, trade me your Corvette. When, why wouldn't Stan Sitwell have a nice car? He's a really successful business guy. You know, <laughs> yeah. You'd think he, you know, why doesn't he just go to a dealership I mean, if he wants to buy a Corvette? I don't want to get too much into the plot of that episode, but basically Job had set fire yeah. to his car that day. So he didn't have a right. car, so he yeah. probably didn't have a way to get home, so the Corvette was just him trying to get a lift home, basically. Uh, but yeah. So are you saying that a room of comedy writers maybe doesn't know a lot about cars? Interesting. You know, they don't spend a lot of time talking about pro sports either. Or, um, I don't know, weightlifting. It's interesting. But it is, it is kind of interesting that they get that detail about like the old Mercedes perfect. Because they're, they're a family that's been kind of coasting on their on their, you know, their reputation and their lack of, you know, it seems like they've been down on their luck for a while, but they've still had a lot on the, in the bank. So an old Mercedes makes perfect sense. And then from that point on, it just gets totally wacky with the car stuff. <laughs> well, at this... I haven't been bothered Jeff, by it. Jeff Garland just <laughs> likes yelling things, so maybe it was just the choice that he made. Uh, yeah. And then we get to see the softball game. Uh, where, of course, Anne isn't as amazing as George Michael had led his father to believe, but Job was playing worse than ever, as per his agreement with Michael, uh, which right. I kind of love. Um, and then, obviously, this is where Stan Sitwell calls a timeout to give Job a pep talk, and uh, Job kind of says, you know, I, I guess you're really disappointed in me. And, of course, Stan is like, after that list of ideas you gave me, I don't care if you blow the whole season. And then now that Sitwell believes in him, he uh, he starts to kind of play properly again. Which, of course, you know, this is where Michael, as Job is running around uh, after hitting what to, appears to me to be an infield triple. You know, Michael starts following him around saying, you better pull an anchor or something. And then obviously he, got, he dives headfirst into the wall. Uh, and then it's revealed that, of course, George Sr. is the umpire. And I don't know how he managed to get there. Uh, or if he's been there the whole game or like where he changed well here here's a question did he pull like a uh, frank drebin and knock out the actual umpire that was assigned I d- to uh... i don't know it's really it's really odd that he just kind of appears there which is something that happens a lot with george senior in this season he just disappears from the attic and yeah. appears wherever he wants sometimes well and here's an here's another big question did Stan Sitwell, is he actually that caring? And he, did he actually not care about the outcome of the game? Or is he just that good and knew <laughs> that it would give Job the confidence that he needed to finally play better? Um, you know, is it's he, just vague enough. Yeah, it exactly. Is. It yeah. really leaves it open. Um, and by the way, um, Job was uh, totally out at the point. He was absolutely out. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. She, no, because... Um, and drops the ball. Oh, did she? I didn't catch that. I think so. I think Anna actually drops but the ball. But he never, he, never, he never tagged home base. That doesn't matter if you knock into the catcher and the catcher drops it. I think you still have to tag home plate. But you could tag after. That's the way that rule is. But it did, That's a rule that was just recently changed in the MLB, where you're not allowed to charge the catchers anymore. Um, but you, it used to be where well, the catcher yeah. could set up, and if the catcher hangs onto the ball, 
um, you're out. I mean, like when Pete, Pete Rose took out what's his name in the All Star game back in uh, what was it seventy eight? Yeah, <laughs> wow, we're really getting uh, yeah. Yeah, what was it you saying? Comedy writers. Yeah. I was gonna say <laughs> this baseball? is like a we're not comedy this writers. This is a this is a property interleague <laughs> softball match. I'm sure you're allowed to jump as as hard as you want into the catcher if they're fine with it. Uh, and of course, this is where George Senior decides that. Uh, Job is out. He went head first like Pete Rose. And uh, yes, yeah. that's a joke for further. Yes. And um, <laughs> this is where George Senior decides that um, you know he he was out, and Job insists that he was safe. And of course, he's chipped his tooth again, so he starts starts the S's start squeaking. And uh, this is where George Senior says, "Stop with the Tweety Bird dance, you moron." Well, and it's the the Tweety Bird stuff uh, refers to both the dance as well as the fact that he's yes. now whistling through his teeth. That's, yeah. that's what I took. Uh, that but also, it's too. it's just a way to let let Job yeah. know that this is George Senior because that's he's also done he's also called him a, a, a moron in this way before. And of course, at this particular right. point, um, only uh, Michael knows that George Senior is anywhere nearby. So I'm I'm surprised that Job isn't a bit more shocked at the fact that his dad is the umpire in this particular match, um, but you know, this That's is true. this is where you know George Senior is kind of fighting with Michael over the call basically, and um, you know, this is where Michael decides that uh, you know he he kind of he's not happy with the fact that he stooped to cheat at this softball game, and so he decides that. Job was safe and that they lost. Um, and I like how Job kind of ignores the whole situation and basically keeps saying, he's like, uh, you two have been talking? How come nobody called me? <laughs> I like how he's kind of left out of it. And he, yeah. and he starts telling him that Stan Sitwell liked my ideas. He really believed in me. <laughs> well, it's another example of Michael doing the right thing for the wrong reasons that I talked about in my last episode, which is like, Michael does the right yeah. thing and says that they lost the game. But it's just to get back at his dad and to prove that he's good, yeah. you know. And I, I like that. Of course, right. this at this particular moment when Michael says, "I don't need your approval anymore," that's when George Senior just goes, "I'm proud of you." And then, of course, Michael's like, "Really?" And he's like, "Yeah, see ya." And then he just runs off. Yeah. Uh, and I, 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 of course, this is where um, Lindsay thinks that hallucination is one of the side effects of Timosil because she. She thinks that she saw Dad. Job apologizes for not blowing the game, which is a kind of weird apology to make. Like he apologizes for for stopping cheating, essentially, uh, and throwing the game. Uh, and then, of course, I like how Job has conflicted emotions here, as Michael says that you know he did the right thing, and you finally got Dad to one of your baseball games. And of course, this is where Job says, "Screw him," and then Michael agrees, and Job goes, "I miss him so much," and I. I kind of love how emotional Job gets over this game. <laughs> like, Job has so much invested in this softball game, um, whereas Michael kind of doesn't really care about the game. He just cares about kind of uh, getting one over on his dad. Um, so I just I just kind of I love how emotional Will Arnett gets with that one line. Um, and that's the end of the episode there. Um, and then, of course, on the next, um, <laughs> Tobias is chasing down Andy Richter. Uh, after 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 maybe got him a job as the security guard um he keeps trying to hand him the headshots and i'm assuming those are the headshots that we saw uh you know earlier in the in the first season of the the four different poses that tobias makes um and then obviously you know buster goes to visit the general and to thank for the new job 
And the general is not happy because, of course, he is shipping out tomorrow. And then as Buster goes to massage his shoulders, <laughs> General Anderson says, I haven't felt hands like that in years. You're coming to the front. <laughs> so all of the effort that Lucille put in singing downtown and whatever else, is, whatever else it required has been completely undone by Buster's kind of own quirk of just massaging anyone that he gets near. Well, I was wondering and, uh, if um, that was also a play on words, too. Like, you're coming to the war front, or you're now coming to the front. Like, <laughs> oh, <laughs> like yeah, I, I was wondering that. if that was, yeah. that was I guess I guess you could take that as a as that kind um, of implication. Um, and there was also a cutscene from the On the Next where, for some reason, George Sr. moves out of the attic, and we see Michael putting him in what I could only assume is the basement as he puts the grill down. Uh, next to the sofa in the in the living room. I don't know what that scene was about. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense to me. It's just uh, more evidence that they did reshoots on this on this episode, I guess. Because yeah, at um, yeah, and it's there's only the only joke in there is um, George finds a possum and and Michael tells him not to yeah, touch it. Yeah, yeah, that's just kind like of like that, the last right? line that you hear. And I don't. It, that would have been a really weird way to end that episode if that had been like the last thing. Um, or if it had been in between, like the the Tobias and the and the Buster scenes, it would have just been a really odd uh, way to end the episode. <laughs> um, well, maybe it yeah. Was well, a, and plus, uh, maybe it was the excuse for getting ahead, um, George Senior out of the attic. Maybe there yeah. was something like they had to get him out of the attic, and that's because we we've talked about like, well, how did he get to the game? Maybe there was some threads that they were trying to tie up there. Yeah, I just, just I just yeah. felt it was an odd scene. Um, the, but there's if there's one thing if if there's one thing I've learned from David Fitcher movies is that um you know people in California don't have basements so it doesn't <laughs> yeah. really make sense from one David Fincher movie right uh, well <laughs> sure it might be in the other ones I don't know it's heavily implied even in the ones that have nothing to do with California yeah even in Curious <laughs> right. even in Alien Three even, yeah yeah in Alien Three <laughs> in the California that exists in Alien Three it was a cutscene it is on a completely different planet <laughs> yeah. no one yeah. has any basements so you know that makes complete sense yeah Rock Rock talks about it right the guy that was in Rock. Are you talking about Sean Connery? <laughs> no, that's the different rock. Different rock. Sylvester <laughs> <Semester> Stallone. <laughs> yes, that's it. That's the okay. one. I didn't know he was. Who said? Who said you're not a comedy writer? <laughs> so, uh, is there anything else I, I that did. we need to cover about this episode, or do you think that we've both covered it enough? Um, um, okay, you go first. No, I was going to say, um, you know, I forget. Do we do like a final judgment kind of thing on this show here? Well, you don't like listen a, to the show. A, uh, we, I mean, how we feel about the episodes. I forget. No, I've, I have been listening, but I forget. if You said this was the first episode you ever saw. Uh, was that right? It was one of the first yeah. ones I saw. It's yeah. one of the first yeah. that you kind of remember. So, you know, you can say how you, f- if, you, know, if you feel it holds up. Because I think, obviously, the sexual harassment stuff that Joe does... <laughs> I would say doesn't really hold up in terms yeah. of, like in a modern kind of setting. Um, yeah, it, it plays a little different now. No, I'll say, um, you know, at the time, the first time I saw it, it was very funny, and I think there are good jokes in it, and I, I feel as though it sets up a lot of important plot lines that'll uh, that'll end up being important later on. Um, as far as, like, how it stands as an episode, I mean, I don't know, it's kind of a, a decent B, maybe, because it's... Uh, I mean, in the first three seasons of Arrested Development, there really aren't any really bad episodes, but this doesn't quite co, you know, 
be it's not quite as cohesive as as some of the others i don't think um and i you know maybe that's just more evidence of the uh the rewrites and the adr that we saw yeah. I would yeah. agree. yeah um i i've really felt like that this because this was this was before the u.s office right yeah yeah all right so um like watching it though i i felt like because I think after the U.S. office started, American sitcoms, or at least single-camera sitcoms, just really the quality increased dramatically. I just felt like I was watching like an average episode of Parks and Rec or U.S. office, or you know whatever other ones have come out. Um, so it wasn't bad, but like looking at my notes for today's episode, I wrote about uh, a half page about the episode. Whereas in pre the last episode I, of the podcast I did, I wrote like two pages, and then the other sort of quarter of a page I spent writing like almost like a fan fiction of J. Walter Weatherman <laughs> being on the uh, in Vietnam with uh, Oscar, and that's how he lost his hand. Oh, I'd see that. I'd see that. Movie. <laughs> well, that's how he lost yeah. his hand too, because uh, uh, Oscar <laughs> can't point out crocodiles. So like that was like sort of my what I was doing for some of this episode. So yeah, it was it was entertaining, but it wasn't. Um, I think the quality did was decreased in this episode comparatively. It took me it took me way too long to figure out what you meant when you when you kept saying the U.S. office. I was like, is that like a like the government in these Arrested <laughs> the Development episodes? I'm like, uh, oh, yeah. the the American version of the office. Well, I, yeah, I just I totally to, didn't um, make sure to differentiate because we do have um, a dirty what's the term? Limey is that a term we could use? <laughs> uh, that, that's I guess. Yeah. So I, I mean, to make sure. for the record. The, this episode went out on the 16th of July 2005. The office started 24th mm-hmm. of March 2005. Oh, okay. So this wow. is literally okay. like eight weeks before the office started. Well, maybe even uh, shot. That's so strange. Maybe even shot like during the office. You know, this, or maybe they were shot at similar times or something like that. Um, but yeah, it's it's cool. That's yeah. I, I guess because because obviously the office was put on as a mid-season replacement, so the first season is is basically just six episodes that are rewrites of the original. Yeah. Um, right. Office. Um, so, you know, it's it's plausible that it would have been shooting at this particular time. Um, interestingly enough, Amy Heckling directed episode six of The Office in America. Obviously, directed oh. uh, Clueless, which I've Clueless. covered extensively. Yeah, covered extensively in another podcast. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> called as if. Well, and and by the way, this is the uh, the second episode I've been on that we've managed to talk about the office somehow. Uh, managed <laughs> to work that into the episode. And that that episode also had uh, Amy Adams in. Uh, so I think we've pretty much covered this episode. Then, so there's nothing else to say. Is yeah. there anything that you wish to plug? And I'm going to start with uh, Kyle. Um, I'd like to plug a show called Arrested Development. Um, <laughs> really recommend it. Uh, other than that, no, I. Um, I'm a, I'm a nobody that I have nothing to contribute to the world. Um, so I'll say whatever CJ plugs is great and continue watching and review this podcast. Uh, Kyle, come on, let your light shine. For a second there, I thought maybe you were like a, uh, you're playing a character and you're um, secretly actually on Arrested Development. Like you're, maybe you're <laughs> no. actually Michael Sarah just playing Kyle Michael. I, I just, I am in Arrested Development. Um <laughs> The music group from you the, suffer from arrest. No, for the music group from the oh, early nineties. Oh. Uh, 
I thought you were going to say you have the psychoses. You were actually like suffering from arrested development. Well, it's called a play on words or a pun. Um, I was going for that. Again, I'm not a comedy writer. I don't know. I don't know this. I don't know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. All right. I think it's your turn now. <laughs> okay. Um, I mean, uh, very little to plug. Um, I have two published books out. Um, you know, this is uh, coming out in November, so it's after um, Halloween. Uh, however, it is perfect for um, spook em ups. So if you're into haunted places and scary things, I do have a book about that. So check that out. CJ Fusco. It's on Amazon. It's available at Barnes & Noble. Great stuff. Well, thanks to both of you guys for joining me uh, today. Thank you, Darren. Yeah, thank you. I, uh, I had a lot of fun. And thanks to everyone for listening. Uh, and otherwise, goodbye. Bye. Adios. <laughs>